One of the most pressing challenges of our generation concerns energy and growing demand for it. It affects almost every aspect of our lives. How we work, how we travel, how we spend our free time, how we design cities, or even how we think about the future of farming. And most of all, it affects our planet. In this podcast, we will talk about the future of energy, what are the biggest challenges for the grid operators, and what are the ideas to meet them that we all, electricity users, will benefit from this. My name is Łukasz Gras and I will be your host for the entire podcast series we called Powering Low Carbon Communities with ABB. Let's start. The operation of supply chain is one of the most important topics of this year, which broke through to the mind of the average consumer. It's also a very important topic in the green energy industry, for instance, when we talk about offshore installation. And to talk about it, I have invited Martin Schellolson, VP Offshore Power at ABB. Hello, Martin. Hello, nice to meet you. And Niklas Indrever, Vice President, Renewables Acker Solution. Hi, good to meet you as well. I dare say that just two years ago, when you said supply chain, only few knew what it was all about. Pandemic and lockdown have changed that. Do you agree? Uh, yes and no, to be honest. I think there's been a maturation in the industry, which we'll get into as we speak, that has sort of driven an understanding of what the supply chain is. What we have seen is that the offshore wind industry haven't been noticeably Uh, or really affected by the pandemic makes the thing a bit more cumbersome takes a bit longer but uh, the growth of the industry is still going very rapidly so so i think this has been sort of a sheltered industry wouldn't you say martin absolutely and uh, i agree to all of that in addition of course you have seen uh, appreciation or price increases uh, for some commodities for example steel and the largest transformers and so on. However, in terms of um, having supply uh, into the projects available to you, uh, it is still there. In particular, if you work in the long term and have uh, sound and solid teams and partners uh, that you go together with in this uh, industry, such as, and this is the approach of uh, ABB, and I'm sure also this is the approach of Arco Solutions. So for this point of view, I wouldn't see say that any supply disruptions that you perhaps might have seen in other industries have affected um, this one um, as much. We will talk about this supply chain in a moment, but before that, I want to ask you about offshore wind and the production process. What does it look like now? Could you explain it to us? Yes. Um... We have seen over the last years, uh, 10, 12 years, that the offshore wind industry has really boomed in uh, in the world and globally, all over the place. Though you see new markets coming up, new countries moving in. Now, what is offshore wind? Well, basically, it is taking wind turbines, as you might have seen on land, and put them out into the sea and make them much, much larger. So the turbines we're talking about now are about 15 megawatts and they might increase. We'll, we'll get back to that. Um, and these mega turbines, uh, which are about 100 meters tall with 100 meter long blades, are placed then into the sea, far off from uh, from people and from, uh, from other uh, stakeholders that might or might not like it. And then they produce power by using the ocean winds. 
Uh, ocean winds are stronger and more steady than what we find on land in general, might be exceptions of course. And then these, uh, when these turbines produce that wind, they send them through cables, uh, either directly to shore or through what we call substations or converter stations where it's uh, transformed. And then uh, Martin can go into a lot of details there. And then it's sent to shore and then into the grid. Um, so basically we're, we're just taking these structures and putting them far into the ocean. Yeah, that's interesting what you said. Where are we now with the solutions? Where will uh, this part of industry look like in the next decades? What we have seen as uh, and described earlier today that um, the sizes of these uh, turbines um, have increased. So uh, you, you, you capture more and more energy uh, with um, each and every one of the turbines. However, Will they grow to uh, into eternity in terms of size? Maybe not. So um, it might be that we come to a size, it could be 20, it could be 25, that uh, is in the end like uh, yeah, hitting the peaks, no uh, prime spot on what the size needs to be. So bigger, better, yes, it has been the last decades. Will it continue forever? Maybe not. So that's one element. And then you have competing sources, uh, if you wish, in terms of renewable power. So will renewable power only be supplied from offshore wind? No. There you have solar, you have onshore wind, you have uh, hydroelectric power, etc. So how large is this uh, industry going to be? We don't know. We do not know that. It will... Uh, uh, be dependent on uh, how cost efficient uh, it will be in comparison to these other sources. And to, but of course, we will make, uh, work uh, very hard on our end, catering to this industry to make it a competitive alternative in the energy mix. Okay, nothing really important comes easy. So also in the development of renewable energy, we have a lot of obstacles to overcome. What are they? And what's the best way to overcome them? Well, that's, you have money. I think what we have seen, one thing is the regulatory thing, uh, relations to actually have, do provide offshore wind developers and supply chain. Important to also remember the supply chain. Uh, and good national and international framework within to work. What are the regulatory conditions? And do you have national ambitions that sort of, sort of validate large investments. If it's just one project, which we've seen in some com uh, countries, it's difficult for the supply chain, it's difficult for the developers to really invest in uh, in that market. But if there are more projects coming on, it's credible that they come and you know the terms and conditions uh, and they are seen as fixed so that there's not much um, change expected in those conditions, then it's quite attractive. To, to certain developers. So that's one of the obstacles, getting those regulatory conditions into place and making them making them valid for all of the players. So you don't sort of focus on just a set of players, but all of them. I think that's one of the, uh, one of the main uh, obstacles we see in, in certain markets. As we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, this is a booming industry and renewable power in general is booming because simply we need to decarbonize the power sector overall to be able to uh, tackle the changes uh, brought upon us on the climate change and, and, and so on. And in that case, when everything is growing at the same time, at some point uh, you drive up uh, prices 
of uh, materials um, and so on and so forth. I think on the material side, that could be managed. But then you have the, also the people factor. So today we are building maybe somewhere around uh, 20, 30 uh, big wind farm projects every year, if you sum it up, and this number will grow. Will it be possible with the same amount of uh, people uh, to double uh, the scale of um, uh, bring, integrating uh, offshore wind power? Probably not. So you would need more people. So we see that already now being a constraint with electrical engineers and so, so on and so forth. So we need more people uh, coming into the industry. But it cannot scale in a linear fashion, right? So we also have to do things uh, a little bit uh, more efficient and uh, smarter in a way. And then the topic of uh, digitalization comes in. So you have to really enhance how you utilize assets and people and so on, so you get uh, more out of each unit of input in developing these projects. Yeah. Niklas, uh, you, you have mentioned regulation, and, and I want to dive uh, a little bit deeper into the, the, this subject, because to be honest, it is one of my favorite topics, regulation versus new technology. One thing is for sure, new technologies will always come before regulation. But you know, how long can you wait? <laughs> How about regulators? Are they responsive with very dynamic innovations? I wish I could say yes, but it's a mixed answer because you have examples of regulators in various countries that are forward-leaning and that sort of take into consideration the support of new technologies. Uh, you have, for example, within the EU, you have the Age 2020 platform where you can apply for money, um, which is a part of the regulatory work that you not only create the laws and, and the various um, rules and regulations, but you also provide a platform, financial one, to, to support this. So you have some funds available in, in, in the EU, for example. Um, since I'm from Norway, in Norway, you have something called ENOVA, which is also very good to demonstrate and to mature mature new technologies. Um, so in that sense, they are quite dynamic. When it comes to the large-scale regulatory conditions, what you sometimes see is that they tend to lean on previous experience. And that experience is uh, sometimes outdated or comes from another industry, which we have seen a bit in Norway, where you, we have a strong oil and gas background. And, and uh, I think a fair amongst the developers for some time, but I, it looks to be coming in order, was that you would take a lot of the oil and gas rules and regulations and apply those. And if you did that, then maybe this sector would not be competitive on a global level. And one thing that I see in multiple countries is the time it takes to consent areas and to develop these offshore wind farms. And that's whether or not it's responsiveness or it's just that all of these systems are, are slow by nature. It's, uh, it's something that needs to be discussed. But I think that's a really important topic to discuss because what we see is that whilst some conditions or some regulatory conditions could take anything from three to seven years to approve a project, the technology development that is happening in that period is actually quite immense. So you might get approvals, you might get permits that are not suitable for the technology you might want to use. And then you get into a loop where you need to reapply and reapply and reapply and takes time and it's very costly. 
So um, I think there needs to be a high level of interaction between the develop uh, regulators and the industry uh, to ensure that we really drive this in the tempo we need to do to meet the obligations we all have from a climate perspective, because that's why we're doing this. It's to really ensure that we meet the CO2 emissions that we must meet from a Paris Agreement perspective and, and ultimate other agreements as well. What does the supply chain look like in terms of offshore wind energy? Yeah, first and foremost, you have uh, some really strong uh, suppliers of the wind turbines um, themselves, right? So um, they have a, a strong position in um, in the market, uh, obviously, and um, it's hard to uh, really buy a few for a small project. So they uh, they uh, go after the big ones and so on and have a lot uh, of power when it comes to uh, supply in that case so so that's uh, one end of it right when it comes to um, collecting um, and transmitting the power it's a mix really how how this is uh, done in the market uh, up until now you have seen uh, what you could call uh, split and conquer in the way or multi contracting so which have played uh, to the favor of uh, yeah small to mid sized companies going after this uh, yeah medium sized uh, bits and pieces of uh, that element of the uh, project right now we see a shift towards uh, larger chunks being uh, tendered in the market. Uh, so you, re- you need to be then um, bigger yourself or part of a bigger team to uh, go after it, right? And uh, which part of the supply chain uh, yeah, uh, in general is ready to capture that? I would say that's really uh, some of the players such Acker and others coming from the traditional oil and gas supply chain, where you are really geared towards taking the full risk and responsibility for larger chunks of a project, right? So that's the trend we are seeing from um, smaller or mid-sized pieces uh, being tendered to uh, larger scopes at, at one time. So you re- really need to be have that size to cater to it or, or and build strong teams to go after it. I think those are very valid points. You'll see in this, we have seen a change in how the clients contract and, and how the clients are set up or set up the contracts really define how, what the supply chain looks like. Another element which is coming very strongly is the larger focus on local content. And that also drives how the supply chain is set up because in the early parts of the industry where you had large projects in the UK, you had large multinational companies or international companies delivering uh, large parts of the scope from outside the UK. Now, what we have seen is that, for example, in Poland, in Scotland, in in France, in other markets, there's, a, there's an expectation that if you're going to build something that requires a license or where you're using the natural resources of that country, such as the space for the offshore info, then the local community needs something back. And then you need to set up a supply chain where you, have, you balance um, strong international uh, players like uh, like ourselves, like ABB, uh, who knows the risks, who knows the products, with an influx of local companies as well. So bring these good small companies, uh, which don't necessarily have that experience just yet, into these projects to ensure that you not only deliver it competitively, but you also create 
local jobs, local value, and uh, and uh, get support from the local community. So I think that will be a, a driver as this industry matures as well to find that balance. And I don't think anyone has really found it yet, but uh, everyone is working on it. We all know renewable power sources are uh, variable by nature. How to increase wind park stability in your opinion? A lot of good uh, work is uh, going on to achieve that. Um, but I would say a little bit um, too siloed. You have the logistics sector, i.e. the vessels, really uh, improving how they operate in an offshore setting. And then, of course, you have the tweaks and turns in the uh, turbines to have them uh, as um, performing as well as possible. And then thirdly, you have the... Um, power collection and transmission part also uh, optimizing itself, I think. And, and that will continue, which is good, and will play in the uh, direction of more stability. However, to really achieve the maximum and best result, we should, as an industry, try to break down these um, silos uh, in a way. So you can have, we like to say, full visibility from... Uh, blade to cloud across uh, all assets parts uh, of uh, a wind farm, right? Really see it holistically. In oil and gas, I mean, you have a term called uh, integrated uh, operations. And the concept there, not to explain it in full detail, but the point is, is that you uh, connect the data from the asset with um, a breadth of uh, various disciplines and then work together across the various asset parts and across the disciplines to uh, enhance uh, uh, all the factors uh, that matter to stability and other parameters of uh, the wind park. So uh, that, uh, in summary, we need to break down a little bit these uh, silos uh, between the various uh, asset parts. No, I, I think it's really good input. What we are seeing some of the developers are doing is, is spending a lot of time to really understand what how hydrogen uh, will interface with the park so you basically when you have strong winds and you overproduce compared to what you're either allowed to or what the system can hold then you're able to store it and then you use that hydrogen then uh, as um, surplus uh, or when you don't have winds blowing then you can use the hydrogen to to create electricity as well early days yet by all means but but we see large companies developing quite a bit of time on this so so i think if within the next 10 years going back to that question that might also be something that you will see will develop yeah absolutely niklas and to add to that not only from the point of stability but also um, in terms of dimensioning your uh, grid connection you can uh, achieve a lot here because now for the the, the cable to connect to the grid in essence is um, dimensioned to cater to the maximum power of the wind farm and it only blows half of the time so if you could have some sort of a buffer as you allude to could be hydrogen could be something else then you could really dimension the grid connection to the average power output right so and that is a really costly um, element of the whole farm so if you could cut that in half that's also with driving yeah, return really on the investment in the farm and it's, um, yeah, you will have less uh, footprint too on the seabed, which is uh, both those things are very good. I want to touch uh, remote support services uh, subject. Remote support services seem, seem to be the key. Are there any other challenges when it comes to service? 
I think Martin can give the, the long answer from our <laughs> perspective. <laughs> it's that, uh, operations is something that we are looking for. And there are, are models that uh, w what we have seen is a lot of the developers wanting to serve it the, the, uh, the wind farms themselves. Uh, but there's also a trend now to, to look at if we can optimize it by, by setting things out. Uh, normally also over time, we've seen that, for example, the wind turbine manufacturers are servicing their own products in, in especially in the guarantee warranty period. Um, and, uh, and that's something I guess we will see for the foreseeable future as well. Uh, but we, when we design stuff, when we build these converter stations, when we build jackets, when we build what we do, then we are definitely involving digital twins, um, and monetary system to be able to, to design for remote operations and design for remote monitoring. But Martin, you're the expert here, so please. Let me offer an analogy now. What do people like? They like to be at home with their families and spending time um, in a safe and secure environment. And just by its name, offshore wind is offshore. It's not really a natural place for people to be over long periods uh, of time, at least. They rather to be. They rather be home. So when we think about how to develop these uh, offshore wind farms. We think from the beginning uh, for them to be as unmanned or even low manned or, at, or even autonomous as possible. And that requires, of course, uh, some infrastructure elements to enable that uh, and the very secure uh, connections in terms of the data and so on and so forth. But it's more than that. It's a philosophy that we bring with us from working in the offshore space, uh, both Arker and ABB for many decades, that you design for a low manned operation. So it's more the philosophy around that and the, the knowledge um, than the actual infrastructure elements themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Niklas. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And uh, as usual, after every such conversation with experts, I feel uh, I know more and I understand more. Thank you for such a valuable conversation. The opportunity to speak directly to such uh, an expert is priceless. I wish you a good day and hope to see you face to face in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>